Hello and welcome to Buffy and the Art of Story Season 4. If you love Buffy the Vampire Slayer and you love creating stories or just taking them apart to see how they work, you're in the right place. Today on the podcast, we'll be talking about Where the Wild Things Are, Season 4, Episode 18, where a frat house once again becomes a dangerous place for everyone. I am Lisa M. Lilly, novelist and founder of writingasasecondcareer.com, where you can find articles about writing, marketing, and publishing. As to where the wild things are, today we'll talk about striking scenes, fantastic dialogue, and lots of series foreshadowing, but protagonist questions particularly Is the Scooby Gang the Protagonist, an amorphous antagonist without a clear goal, and magic that doesn't follow logic, plus no clear theme or point to the story and what that does to our viewing experience. There will be no spoilers except at the end to talk about foreshadowing, but I'll give you plenty of warning. Okay, let's dive into the Hellmouth. Where the Wild Things Are aired the first time on April 25th, 2000. It was written by Tracy Forbes and directed by David Solomon. It starts with an opening conflict, which is there to draw the reader or viewer in. Buffy and Riley fight a demon and a vampire in the graveyard, and the demon and vamp seem to be working together. Which surprises them, Buffy says, vampire demon tag team, who says we can't all get along? After they fight off their foes, Riley comments on how he's never seen that before, and Buffy says it never happens. Vampires hate demons. As Buffy and Riley talk, they brush twigs and grass out of one another's hair. They keep touching each other. Very strong chemistry. They agree that they ought to tell Giles about this development right away, but instead we cut to them in Riley's room, taking off one another's clothes, kissing and they agree they'll tell Giles first thing tomorrow and fall into bed. At 2 minutes 19 seconds in, we go to credits. When we return, we're outside the Lowell Fraternity House. That's where the initiative has its base. Buffy and Riley are sleeping, but he wakes up in the hallway. He looks around as if he hears something. And in the bathroom, he slowly approaches the old-fashioned tub with the shower curtain around it. At 5 minutes 17 seconds in, Riley dramatically pulls aside the curtain, but all we see behind it is just a faucet dripping. He tightens it and ice cream truck music plays. That music carries us into the next scene where Xander in a striped uniform drives the ice cream truck. Anya rides next to him. He wants her to come to a big party at Riley's and Anya's frustrated and says he knows why she doesn't want to go to it. The initiative men, quote, make me not comfortable and you don't care, close quote. Xander points out they don't know she's an ex-demon, which is a nice quick way to get in that exposition through conflict. And he doesn't know if they'd care if they did, but by the way, they're not going to find out. He stopped the truck and he goes into the back of it to start getting his supplies in order. And as he does, he tells Anya that... 
the initiative guys will probably be too busy flirting with, quote, every other girl at the party, unquote, to notice her. Really bad move, Xander. Anya says, so you don't think I'm desirable enough to be flirted with? Is that it? And Xander says, I'm just not going to win here, am I? Anya's worried he doesn't find her attractive anymore because they didn't have sex the night before, and she thinks they're breaking up because he's gotten tired of her. She says she's seen it happen to thousands of women over the centuries. A little bit more great exposition through conflict, Xander protests there's more to them as a couple than sex, or there should be. Anya asks if there's something wrong with his body. She saw, quote, that wrinkled man on TV talking about erectile dysfunction, end quote. Xander insists that all systems are go and continues, you want sex? He starts unbuttoning his uniform shirt. Let's have sex right here. Hot, sweaty, big sex. The camera angle shifts we now see Anya and Xander from outside the truck, the side windows open, and it's framing them. Xander looks down, and kids and parents stand there ready to buy ice cream. An example of something other podcasters have noticed that it seems no one in Sunnydale has peripheral vision. As Xander and Anya stare at the kids in horror, we get a voiceover by Giles. There's always been great discord between them. We switch to our friends sitting in a lounge area on the college campus, and Giles is talking. He's surprised the vampire helped the demon during the fight. And we're now over seven minutes into the story. Regular listeners to the podcast might notice that there is something missing. I haven't talked yet about the story spark or inciting incident that gets the main plot rolling. Usually we see that about 10% through any story. With Buffy, it's pretty reliably there between about 4 minutes, 20 seconds in, to about the latest is 5.5 minutes in, which is a little over 10%. So what did we see at 10% through? Well, a bit past that was when Riley yanked open that shower curtain and found nothing. That's our first hint of kind of spooky things happening. Before that, Riley and Buffy decided to have sex rather than go talk to Giles right away about the demons and vampires. That was quite a bit before 10%. It could have been the story spark, given what develops later in this episode. But it's not clear to me why that matters so much. Uh, what was Giles going to do the night before that he didn't do the next day when they told him? And in fact, he doesn't actually do anything about this information in this episode. So this is the start of what I would call a lack of clarity in the storytelling here. Yes, Buffy and Riley's choice certainly hints at what will turn out to be the central conflict of the episode, but it's not clear that it sets off the story. Giles now explains that the demons think vampires are abominations because they have mixed blood, including human blood. As he talks, Buffy and Riley exchange looks, their minds clearly elsewhere. But when Giles wonders what brought the demons and vampires together, Riley and Buffy both think Adam. 
who better to bring together a bunch of demon types than someone who is made out of a bunch of demon types? Giles suggests they concentrate patrols in the same area of the graveyard. Riley says he'll have a squad out there, including during the party. Giles is surprised that the initiative is hosting a party with Adam out there, but Riley says the boys are pretty ragged and they all need to let off some steam. He tells Giles he's welcome to come to the party. But Giles has other plans. He'll be at the espresso pump. It's um, a meeting of grown-ups that couldn't possibly be of interest to any of them. Riley asks Buffy, doesn't she have a class in 20 minutes? He has that thing that maybe they could fit in, and she agrees, yes, and they run off holding hands. Willow half laughs and says they're probably going to, and Giles says, yes, thank you. I did attend university in the Mesozoic era. I do remember what it's like. At 9 minutes 25 seconds in, we get some more creepy music. And an outside shot of the mansion slash fraternity house at night. Inside, Forrest and Graham head down a flight of stairs. They're clearly freezing. Their arms are folded around themselves and they complain about the cold. They pause outside Riley's door and hear Buffy and Riley. And Forrest says, oh, you got to be kidding me. When did these two come up for air? At 9 minutes 58 seconds... We see Buffy and Riley in bed. Riley opens a drawer and reaches for a condom, which at the time I think was a little bit of a public service announcement. In a lot of shows then, we didn't see the characters using birth control. Downstairs, another frat boy is feeding wood into the fireplace. Then the frat boy sits in a rocker near it, trying to stay warm. We close up on Buffy and Riley, then close up on the fire. We're approaching the one-quarter mark of the episode. That's often where we see what I think of as the one-quarter twist. It spins the story in a new direction. It's that first major plot turn to do that, and it should come from outside the protagonist, and it often raises the stakes. Here, at 10 minutes 49 seconds in, the fire surges out of the fireplace and into the room and catches the frat guy's leg on fire. So this definitely raises the stakes and comes from outside of Buffy, assuming she's our protagonist, though it does seem linked to her and Riley given those camera cuts between the two scenes. Forrest tries to smother the flames with a blanket. Graham runs for help. This also is the first direct move by the antagonist to the extent we have one here. We're going to see these spirits or this energy, whatever it is, use different weapons or ways to achieve its ends. And here it's fire. Not clear, again, why particularly now does the fire surge? Yes, Riley and Buffy are having sex, but presumably that's continuing and the fire just does this one surge and then goes back to normal. At 11 minutes, 13 seconds in, we reach one of my favorite aspects of this episode. Anya walks the streets of Sunnydale at night. Spike leaps out, fangs out. She screams and his arms drop to his sides and he says oh it's you Anya responds Spike what are you doing you made me yell really high he is very happy when he realizes he scared her and he tells her to give him money but she says she's not paying him for scaring her Spike explains it's not paying he's robbing her and Anya says that's ludicrous 
She knows he can't hurt her because of his chip. Another quick moment of exposition through very fun conflict, we find out about Spike being a vampire and that he has a chip and can't hurt anyone. And then Anya says one of my favorite Anya lines, also, I like my money the way it is when it's mine. As someone who had a boyfriend who was very good at getting me to pay for things, I completely relate. I am right with you, Anya. When Anya asks if scaring people into giving him money really works, Spike laughs and says it keeps him in blood and beers, quote, plus, you know, funny watching the little humans quail, close quote. When Anya comments, though, that she's starting to see why he's so friendless, he notes that he doesn't see Droopy Boy on her arm. Did he have better things to do? We cut to the party where Xander is there with Buffy and Willow and Tara. Buffy is talking with them. Riley is talking with his friends across the room, but neither one of them is really listening. Instead, they're gazing at one another. Willow takes advantage to tell Buffy, quote, someone so not me spilled something purpley, end quote, on Buffy's new peasant top. And does Buffy still love her? Buffy says, uh-huh. What about my peasant top? Willow responds, nothing. And Tara adds, Xander was just talking about Anya. Xander says he's glad a certain ex-demon has no powers. We cut back to Anya and Spike. They're drinking at the bronze, sitting next to each other on a couch, kind of slumping a bit, and Anya says she misses her powers. And she goes on, a year and a half ago, I could have eviscerated him with my thoughts. Now I can barely hurt his feelings. Things used to be so much simpler. Spike waxes eloquent about how you take the killing for granted and then it's gone and, quote, you're like, I wish I'd appreciated it more, close quote. Which is so relatable, obviously not the killing part, but that idea of something in your life you don't really appreciate until it is missing. Anya agrees with him and Spike goes on, it's a terrible thing, love is. I've been there myself and did badly. Anya responds, of course it did. It always does. And she goes on about how relationships start with love and sex, but then all that's left is vengeance. Spike leans close and tells her they should take the vengeance. She could really eviscerate Xander, and he'll go and stake Drew. At first, Anya's intrigued, but she sighs and smiles and says she just can't, but he should go ahead and find Drew, and Spike says maybe later. We return to the party. The music has gotten much louder. The room is a lot more crowded. A frat boy pontificates to a young woman about the inherent sensuality of language. He compares the word car to the French word voiture and puts his hand on the wall near the fireplace. Then he moans in ecstasy. So this is our second clear moment of the antagonist doing something. But now this energy, which is still focused near the fireplace, is giving pleasure. Buffy and Riley are still shooting looks at one another from across the room. Xander wanders over to a girl whose name we find out is Julie, and she's looking at a display of trophies and plaques. And Xander says, Lowell House, 1962. She says yes in a teasing voice, and he tells her he's just impressing her with his knowledge of local history or his knowledge of reading. Julie says, and you didn't even have to sound anything out. Xander responds, you should see me add short columns of small numbers. She laughs and they talk. And when she asks who he's here with, he says, quote, right now, I seem to be here with you, close quote. 
At 16 minutes, 53 seconds in, Buffy tells Riley she needs him to look at an essay. Riley hands his beer to Forrest, who rolls his eyes, and Buffy and Riley head upstairs. Graham laughs and says, and I'm the one who got a D in covert ops. The frat guy from before near the fireplace calls another one over, has him put his hand against the wall, and he too moans, saying, oh God, and what is that? And a small group of students, both male and female, start gathering around that spot on the wall. Tara and Willow sit on the stairs. They're talking about horses, which Tara loves and Willow is clearly afraid of. She confides she had a bad birthday party thing with a pony when she was four. But she's willing to try with Tara, and she puts her hand on Tara's knee. But Tara jerks away and says, don't touch me. It's disgusting. Tara stands. Willow asks what's wrong. Tara's confused and she goes upstairs and Willow looks crushed. At 18 minutes 30 seconds in, Spike and Anya enter the party and Spike realizes he knows these guys. And Anya blithely responds that the initiative soldiers live here. It's where they put in his chip. Let's have fun, she says. And Spike is appalled and says, what are you doing? You brought me here? Xander joins them and says, Anya? What are you doing? You brought him here? And Spike says, that's what I said, only I hit the here part. Xander tells Anya they had a fight. It means they need to work things out, not, quote, rebound with the evil undead, end quote. Spike makes fun of Xander being possessive, and Xander starts calling Spike Hostel 17 really loud, but no one seems to care. Spike's relieved, and he goes off to find the liquor. Anya reassures Xander she didn't have sex, which is all she does now, not have sex. She also feels she and Xander have nothing in common except liking his penis, and now they don't even seem to have that. So we are building on the theme, I guess, of sex. We've visited it with all of our characters, at least in conversation. But I feel like it is more of a topic or an organizing idea than a theme because throughout the episode, I remain unclear what it is saying about sex or what the point of the episode is. Anya and Xander keep fighting and Xander walks off to enjoy the party. Anya yells after him that she'll stay too, just to show him how much she's not bothered by him having fun. In another room, students play spin the bottle using a beer bottle and Xander says, huh, sometimes I just don't get the sophisticated college lifestyle. Julie, though, looks happy. He came into the room and he joins the circle. Meanwhile, Spike sits near the beer keg looking morose. We're around 21 and a half minutes in. Xander spins the bottle and it points at Julie. He looks away for a second. He takes a breath. He's very hesitant and says, quote, okay, this then would be the kissing, close quote. And he leans over and kisses her cheek really fast. So we see that Xander doesn't really want to be with anyone other than Anya, despite flirting with Julie earlier. Now we're at the midpoint of the episode. Usually here in a strongly structured story, we'll see the protagonist making a major commitment, throwing caution to the wind, 
or suffering a major reversal. Here at 22 minutes, four seconds in, Julie grabs Xander, kisses him, climbing on top of him, and she keeps kissing him until he finally pushes her away. And it takes a little force and he says, Julie. And she looks stricken and she apologizes and runs off. So this is something of a reversal. It's the first time that whatever this energy is clearly affected our characters in a way that is um, obviously influenced by something going on. We did see that with Tara and Willow, but from Willow's perspective, not clear that there was anything supernatural happening. Here, Xander recognizes something is not right. This brings me to the question of who the protagonist is in this episode. And when I first watched it for the podcast, I thought maybe it was the Scooby gang minus Buffy and Riley, but I think that we have to include them in it because when we look at what makes a protagonist, we need all of them. If you find the story structure I talk about in the podcast helpful and would like to apply it to your own fiction, you can download a free story structure template at writingasasecondcareer.com slash story. A protagonist should have an active goal be the main point of view character and have the most at stake. So Buffy and Riley throughout the episode are actively pursuing a goal. The fighting of the demon and the vampire is just backdrop. They are pursuing their sexual connection, their attraction to one another, perhaps also their love for one another. Anya similarly is seeking sex with Xander and fearing that the lack of it means things are going wrong in their relationship. We also see Willow. We don't necessarily see her having a goal early in the episode to connect more with Tara, but there is that subtle moment between them when it seems to be building their connection and Tara backs away. And there is the overall goal of Riley and his initiative guys and Buffy and her friends to have fun at the party and let off steam. So in that sense, Everyone has an active goal. The point of view shifts between our friends, including Buffy and Riley. They're probably the most peripheral in terms of point of view. We just get these short moments, which is why initially I thought perhaps they were not part of the group protagonist. But when we get to who has the most at stake, it's definitely Riley and Buffy because we find out that they could die, where the others, it seems, if they just stayed out of the house, would be safe. Xander goes after Julie, and he sees the other partygoers enjoying that spot on the wall. So once again, there's a contrast because Julie, in a much more exaggerated way than Tara, clearly is feeling shame. This energy has caused her to feel shame, but that is not the case for the students at the wall. At 23 minutes in, 
Xander hears Julie's voice from inside a closet, and we get a quick view of her. She's crying and saying, I'm bad, I'm bad. And then she cuts off big chunks of her hair as she says it. So this seems like a stronger reversal, though not direct to our protagonist group. But Xander obviously cares about what's going on here, and he keeps knocking on the closet door. We then cut to Willow knocking on the bathroom door, another nice scene transition. Like Riley did before, she enters the bathroom, creepy music plays, but things seem to be okay until she opens that shower curtain around the tub. Inside, a boy is drowning. He's completely underwater, and his arms are crossed over his chest, and he's struggling. Willow reaches for this boy to try to help, and he disappears. Then she turns around, and he's standing there, but dead. Willow screams. And we cut to Riley and Buffy. It's 24 minutes, 30 seconds into the episode. They're breathing hard. Riley asks if that was Willow, and Buffy says she doesn't know, but it doesn't matter. Another reversal for our protagonist as a group, Buffy and Riley don't help Willow, and that's a reversal for them as well because so much of their identity is in protecting and helping others. So there does seem to be maybe a theme here of sex being more important to Buffy than her friends and her mission to protect people. I'm still not sure that that comes together into a theme because at this point, we're definitely getting the feeling that Riley and Buffy don't exactly have a choice here. Yes, Buffy says she doesn't know, it doesn't matter, but it doesn't feel like Buffy is uh, is chock full of free will, as she will say at one point in the series. Downstairs, Xander asks the students playing Spin the Bottle if any of them are friends with Julie that she needs help and they ignore him. So again, the theme of sex being more important than friends. Willow runs downstairs. She finds Xander, tells him about the, quote, ghost boy drowning in a tub, close quote, and said she tried to save him, but, quote, being a ghost already, I was way too late, close quote. And these quotes remind me how much I enjoy the dialogue in this episode. There, there are some wonderful lines, and I tend to forget them when I'm recalling the episode because it's not one of my favorites. So I'm always delighted by how much there is in here that I really do like. Tara joins them. She tells Willow she is okay now, but she doesn't like it here. And they're all ready to go, but the beer bottle spins faster and faster and shatters, sending shards of glass at everyone in the circle. So before this energy or spirits used fire as a weapon, then we saw water, although that was more of a vision than something used against our protagonists, and now it is using the glass bottle. Willow says they need Buffy, and our friends go up and pound on Riley's door, but they get no answer. Then thick vines, almost like thorns, sprout out from under the door. So we have a sort of nature theme here, vines, foliage, water, fire. The bottle spinning doesn't fit that, and neither does that spot on the wall, but I do think there's something here, especially given the title of the episode referring to wild things. At this point, it's not clear are the vines there to protect Riley and Buffy, 
Or is it malevolent to keep them in their own world so that they keep powering the house? Probably that because those vines do have a bit of a scary feel. This seems to be some sort of a metaphor suggesting wilderness, nature, and a connection to sex. But I'm not sure we see any other real connection to the natural world in the story. Inside the bedroom, Riley and Buffy continue to make love, and now they don't seem to even hear their friends. The room is dark, the camera angle is from above, and all we see is the bed lit and Buffy and Riley. So it's as if just the bed exists in this void. And the camera keeps pulling back, so they become smaller and smaller and smaller, and we cut to a commercial. At 26 minutes, 23 seconds in, we return on that same shot. Riley asks Buffy if she wants to go back. I can't hear what it is she says, but it seems to be no. And we switch to the friends outside, still pounding on the door, calling to Riley and Buffy, and the vines grow. Overall, this scene feels very long to me. I think you could have done it in a few seconds, and it it just keeps continuing. Tara walks to the railing and looks down on the main floor. The chandelier starts shaking, and the whole house shakes as if it's an earthquake. Lots of the guests run out. Spike is still sitting in his chair and watching and enjoying the show. So another nature reference, the earthquake, but now, uh, totally not nature, straps suddenly appear and bind Spike to the chair. They snap around his chest, his hands, his feet, one covers his mouth. And this particular moment reminds me of the episode I Only Have Eyes for You in Season 2, I was just editing that part for uh, the Buffy and the Art of Story book covering the second half of season two, and it reminded me there was a poltergeist there, which is something like what we've got going here, and the arm shot out of a locker and tried to strangle someone, I think maybe Xander, and it didn't ever seem to connect up to the ghost, James, who was in the school replaying his scene where he shot his teacher, Miss Newman, and those ghosts eventually inhabited Buffy and Angel. And in that episode, I commented that a couple of the scares just didn't ever seem to connect to that. And that's how this moment with Spike feels to me. So it's interesting that this too is a poltergeist-like episode. Graham is watching the chaos and doing nothing, and Forrest yells at him that they need to help. Instead, Graham quotes what sounds like a Bible verse about impure things and finding salvation. So now we see Graham seemingly experiencing shame. Forrest takes Graham into the initiative elevator. Now Anya is there alone and a girl screaming runs right through Anya and out the door. Anya runs outside with her friends. Um, everything is still shaking. Spike breaks those leather straps and he runs out as well. Then Julie staggers toward the door. She's almost bald, asking for help. Xander grabs her and helps her out of the house. We switch to below ground in the initiative. A guy in a lab coat talks about how they need to lock things down, and then that's it for the initiative. I'm not sure if locking things down, I don't know if that does anything, because we'll see our friends can't get back in the house, but that seems to be because of these ghosts or poltergeists. 
The fact that we don't see the initiative, guys, again, it reminds me of in the old days, and maybe this is still true on soap operas. Uh, the one I watched was All My Children, and I didn't watch any others or pick up any others when that was canceled. But if they had enough of a character, they would just send the character, it was a joke, like up to the attic to get something, and they would just not come back. And then maybe five years later, they'd appear in the storyline again. So I, I feel like instead of the attic, we sent the initiative guys to the basement. At 29 minutes, 13 seconds in, our friends stand outside, but Willow says they need to go back in. And when Anya asks why, Xander says because Buffy and Riley are in there. Xander is going back in and he asks who's with him. And Spike says he is. And we get a lovely Spike speech. He says, I am. I know I'm not the first choice for heroics, and Buffy's tried to kill me more than once, and I don't fancy a single one of you at all, but actually, all that sounds pretty convincing. And he walks off. Xander vows not to come out of the house until he can bring Buffy with him, but almost as soon as he steps in, he is thrown back out by an invisible force. As he's lying on the ground, he says, or it could be watcher time. Now we go to my favorite scene of the episode and perhaps of this season. At 30 minutes, 28 seconds in, Giles sits on a tall stool in the espresso pump playing acoustic guitar and singing. And he is really, really good, both at the guitar playing and the singing. He's singing Behind Blue Eyes by The Who. I wonder about the choice. Does Giles in this season feel like the bad man or the sad man? And does he have blue eyes? I, I should really look to see. Our friends stare at him, all but Sander, clearly impressed. Anya definitely a little bit smitten. And I think it's a good choice that her attraction, seeing Giles, is the most obvious because we've established that she's a thousand years old. So it doesn't have that creep factor. Xander wants to go back to the haunted house, however, because he is more creeped out here. Giles looks distraught when he spots them, but he is so professional. He does not miss a note. He doesn't hesitate continues his song. Willow says now she remembers why she used to have such a crush on Giles. So we do have a sex theme continuing here in a more mild way. And I think there's a reason Willow uses the word crush. We're not getting the feeling that there was anything inappropriate. Later, Willow will say that it was kind of sexy. And I think it's interesting because other than in this episode, the only person who ever comments on Giles being attractive is Faith, back when she first met him in season three. At 31 minutes, 49 seconds in, we cut to the fraternity house. We see the fireplace, the vines are everywhere upstairs, nearly covering the ceiling and Riley's door. Inside, Buffy and Riley lie on their backs in bed and Buffy is breathless. She says, you're, you're too far away from me. And Riley says, I'm right here. Buffy responds, you have to keep touching me. She rolls over and kisses him again. So we're at about three quarters through the episode Usually here we'll see the last major plot turn, which spins the story in yet another new direction, and it should grow out of the midpoint. It's 32 minutes, 22 seconds in, and Giles sits with our friends at a library. 
Giles questions them about Buffy and Riley not responding to them calling out, and Anya thinks they might be dead. But Xander says, or they were too busy doing it to answer. When Giles says doing what, Xander responds, you know, for a god of acoustic rock, you're kind of naive. Giles rolls his eyes. He didn't think they could keep it up in the midst of everything else going on. And then he says something like, oh, for a different turn of phrase. Willow tells him, though, that people all over the party were acting weird sexually. Giles says this could be succubi or a satyr's prank or energy coming from the initiative lab below. Willow finds something in a book that the fraternity house from 1949 to 1960 was the Lowell home for children. It housed adolescents, runaways, juvenile delinquents, but there's nothing about any deaths. The director, Genevieve Holt, is still alive. In the next scene, Genevieve lets them into her home. She doesn't mind them calling so early. She was up for morning prayer. And she likes talking about her kids. She explains that she fed them, clothed them, educated them in the way of the Lord. When Giles asks about any odd disturbances like furniture moving or someone appearing and disappearing, she tells him that sounds like crazy talk. She goes on that she treated the kids as her own, hugs and prays when they were good, and punished them when they were dirty. Giles thinks she means literal dirt, but Anya says, you didn't mean muddy dirty. And Genevieve tells them that the kids didn't think she knew, but she did. Without her, they would have been shut out of the kingdom, lost to lust. The girls preened like Jezebel doting over their hair, and Xander says, so you'd hack it off. And Genevieve says, yes, she removed the temptation. She also did baptisms on those who were the most unclean. She held them under because they needed to be reborn. And there's an open question here because Willow just told us there were no deaths. So I guess that Genevieve didn't kill any of them, but then Willow saw that boy who was definitely dead. He looked like he had been drowned, not just traumatized. I don't know if if that's a disconnect or if what we're saying is what she did was as bad as killing them or it had the effect on this lingering energy as if she had killed them. Giles looks angry. Genevieve accuses him of passing judgment on her, and he says someone ought to. She traumatized and abused children in her care. And she says, I refuse to listen to this when I can smell the sin on each and every one of you. At 37 minutes in, out in the hallway, Giles says these aren't ghosts or apparitions. So I guess we are confirming she didn't kill them. But they are poltergeists born of intense adolescent emotion and sexuality, and Xander speculates that Buffy and Riley set something free with their constant sex. So maybe that answers my question in the beginning. I guess we are to take it from this that sometime around now things really ramped up with Riley and Buffy, and, and maybe that connects to the last episode, Superstar, where they were still struggling to get past the difficulties that faith caused and now they have reconnected so so maybe that is does answer my question of why now giles agrees yes the poltergeists are feeding on the sexual energy of riley and buffy Xander says okay they're the battery in the boo factory so what happens when the battery's drained and giles responds they die i 
feel like this is the attempt to raise the stakes. And the trouble is, I don't really believe it because even the first watch, I don't think I had any thought that Buffy and Riley were going to die. Also, the logic's a little difficult to follow. I believe it because Giles said so, they would die, but the logic seems to suggest the opposite, that Buffy and Riley will get worn out eventually and the apparitions will stop. It could also fit that they will keep having sex, I guess, until they they ignore everything else and they starve to death or they have heart attacks or something like that. And then the energy in the house dissipates. But that doesn't quite fit to the battery drains and they die. Or maybe it does. But that I have to talk it through this much when I've watched all of Buffy so often and outlined it and edited my outline before recording tells me that this takes too much of trying to piece it together. And this late in the story, we want things to just be unspooling and happening, not to still be thinking, wait, what? Does that make sense? Another logic question is next Our friends will try to cast out these spirits, and yet earlier we saw a lot of them run out of the house. There was that girl in particular who ran right through Anya. So where are these spirits? Also, what do they want? Never clear. And I I think what Giles is saying is almost that they don't want anything in particular. They're just there and manifesting all these things because Riley and Buffy have supercharged them. And this is the problem I mentioned at the beginning. When you have an unclear antagonist, I don't even know what to call them, energy, spirits, poltergeists, it can rob a story of its power because not only do we not know exactly what our protagonists are fighting, because sometimes that can add some mystery, but we don't know what the antagonist wants, why it's doing what it's doing. It feels more like, okay, this energy is causing random bad things and now we have to stop it, which doesn't make for a compelling story. Today's episode of the podcast Buffy and the Art of Story is sponsored by my nonfiction book, Happiness, Anxiety, and Writing, Using Your Creativity to Live a Calmer, Happier Life. I wrote this book because I found for myself and many other creative people I knew that the same vivid imagination that helps us come up with compelling plot turns or character backstories or just tell great stories in whatever form we do can also lead to anxiety because most of storytelling comes down to asking what if and often coming up with the worst possible answer. What if this woman who loves someone so much finds that person dead the night before they're about to move in together? That was the premise of my first detective mystery, The Worried Man. 
And in real life, those kinds of questions can lead to spinning through endless negative outcomes and thinking about the worst thing that could happen and whether you'll be able to deal with it, which for me usually happens when I wake up in the middle of the night. So happiness, anxiety, and writing shares ways to instead use imagination and writing skills to create more calm and happiness. From the book, you'll learn techniques to derail anxious, repetitive thoughts like the ones I just mentioned, ways to talk to yourself and other people, deliberately choosing your words to promote more calm rather than reinforcing your worries, specific targeted exercises, to direct your creativity and imagination in positive ways, and how to rewrite the best parts of your life and relive them to feel overall happier and calmer. You can get it in workbook form if you would like to write answers to questions or write out the exercises that are suggested, or you can buy it in ebook form. So that's happiness, anxiety, and writing Using Your Creativity to Live a Calmer, Happier Life by L.M. Lilly. Link in the show notes, or you can go to writingasasecondcareer.com slash happiness. We go back to Buffy and Riley in bed. Now the shot is somewhat blurry. Their voices echo, so it's a very surreal sort of feeling. For a second, they're side by side on their backs, and Buffy says, Don't stop. Never stop touching me. So it's essentially the same scene we saw before, but a little bit more surreal in feeling. And that, too, makes the story have less momentum. Though I'm sure it's meant as a warning that they are starting to get tired, they're getting to that point where Giles says that they will die. At 38 minutes, 10 seconds in, Tara, Willow, and Giles sit around a table and set up for a spell to bind the spirits, long enough for Xander and Anya to get Buffy and Riley out but they're not sure how long they'll be able to keep the spirits away. Xander is getting out weapons. Anya thinks they don't need them because they're fighting spirits, but he brings them anyway. And now we are reaching our climax where the opposing forces have their final clash and resolve the confrontation. At 38 minutes, 37 seconds in, Xander and Anya wait outside the house. They can't get in. So this is where I mentioned the spirits seem to have the power to lock people out of the house, which raises the question why the vines couldn't they just lock people out of Riley's bedroom. Now, for storytelling reasons, we want the vines because they're more visual, it's more dramatic, but then why not have the vines around the whole house? Tara says the spell, she asks the spirits to come forth, be guided by the light, and spooky-looking children appear in a circle around our friends. The door opens for Xander and Anya. Inside, the vines are all over. So maybe the answer is the vines are partly generated by or generated more directly by Buffy and Riley. So that's why they are inside the house and not outside. 
Xander and Anya hack at the vines with those weapons Xander insisted on bringing. Tara, Willow, and Giles ask the spirits to transform their pain, release their pasts, and Willow says, get over it. At 40 minutes, 39 seconds in, Xander grasps the doorknob of Riley's door, but a huge wind blows him back. Wind also blows in the room with a spell. All the children look up and Tara yells, find here the serenity you seek. The wind knocks the table over, though, and the children disappear and the room becomes very bright. So we have another element of nature. We saw earth, fire, and water, and now wind. Tara says they lost the children, and Willow says Xander. And we cut back to Xander. The wind pitches him away from the door, and then an invisible force drags him into the bathroom, and the door slams. Anya is thrown over the railing down to the first floor. She lands partly on a couch, and Xander is drowning in the bathtub. The children look down at him. Anya staggers upstairs. A giant vine bursts out of a railing and goes right through her palm, which really grosses me out. She yanks it out. Somehow she gets into the bathroom and gets Xander out of the bathtub. They stagger into the hallway together. The foliage and the vines are thicker. The vines are lashing out at them. One of them cuts Xander's face. At 42 minutes, 41 seconds in, Anya and Xander get to the door and together shove it open. And the door just opens. Not clear why that is. It doesn't seem to be because of the spell, because Tara said they lost the children and some pretty bad things happened after that, including that vine going right through Anya's palm and Xander drowning. Is it because it's Anya and Xander together? Do we need the two of them? Is there significance in that Anya and Xander are fighting about not having sex? Maybe. I suspect I'm reading into that more than the writers did. Is it because they tried the doorknob and before everyone just knocked? But we did see Xander try the doorknob. So it is unclear how our protagonist prevailed. Also unclear what exactly the antagonists wanted, other than I suppose to continue to exist. So they wanted Buffy and Riley to continue having sex behind that door. For whatever reason, though, this has stopped. And Buffy and Riley, with sheets partially covering them, look shocked and they look perfectly normal, don't seem to have a memory of what's been happening. And Buffy says, Xander, don't you knock? And the vines also, when that door opens, the vines are just all gone. But Xander and Anya are still pretty cut up and bruised and exhausted, and they just turn and walk away. We're now at the falling action where we tie up loose ends and resolve subplots. There aren't a lot of subplots to resolve here, um, a little bit of loose ends and a little bit of humor. At 42 minutes, 53 seconds in, in the school cafeteria the next day, Riley and Buffy talk about how they can't believe it happened. It's so creepy. Buffy says she had no idea and goes on, he was really singing? And Xander says, I'd say it was more like crooning. If we grow old together, remind me to skip the midlife crisis. And I am offended on Giles' behalf, clearly. He has played music all his life. And Willow says it was kind of sexy, and Xander begs her to stop saying that. Riley tells them they're just lucky no one got injured, referring back to uh, the events at the house, and also ignoring Xander's and Anya's injuries. 
And Riley says, no thanks to us. Buffy says, if they hadn't gotten so wrapped up in each other, none of this would have happened. Anya responds, true, feel shame. But Willow says it wasn't their fault. They were under the influence of powerful magic. Buffy says they were like zombies. She had no control. And Willow says, must have been horrible. Buffy looks sideways at Riley. They give each other little smiles. Buffy says, yeah, horrible. Riley says, yeah. And Buffy responds, "Mm mm-hmm. And Riley says, it was bad. And we cut to credits. So there is no DVD commentary here. I might have liked some because I was curious what the writers were going for here. I do have a little bit of uh, other thoughts on that in the foreshadowing section. Before that, though, I looked up the book Where the Wild Things Are, the children's book from 1963, a picture book by Maurice Sendak. And I never read the book as a kid. I I don't know why I missed that one. I read a ton. It won the uh, Caldecott Medal from Children's Librarians in 1964. And in 2012, in a survey of school library journal readers, it was still listed as the number one picture book. It might very well have won that again more recently. And it focuses on a boy named Max who dressed in a wolf costume and he causes such havoc in the house that he's sent to bed without supper. His bedroom then undergoes a transformation into a jungle environment. He sails off to an island that frightening beasts inhabit, so they're called the wild things. He successfully intimidates them. This is all according to the Wikipedia entry. I didn't go and get the book. I probably should have. Um, He becomes the king of the wild things, has a playful romp with his subjects, but starts to feel lonely, decides to return home to the wild things' dismay. And when he gets back, there's a hot supper waiting for him. So the Wikipedia entry also quotes Selma G. Lane's book, The Art of Marie Sendak, where Sendak discussed this book along with two others that he saw as sort of a trilogy he created centered on children's growth, survival, change, and fury. And Sendak said, quote, all are variations on the same theme, how children master various feelings, danger, boredom, fear, frustration, jealousy, and manage to come to grips with the realities of their lives. And that's the end of the quote. I did not feel any more informed after I read this. I am not sure if that fits the episode. I don't see the parallels. Buffy and Riley don't really come to grips with anything themselves. They don't seem to have undergone any sort of journey other than at the beginning they're obsessed with each other, at the end perhaps mildly less so or recognize the dangers of it. And I don't know that the children's spirits work through anything. So I I don't know if there is a reference here or lesson other than just using wild things in the title and the connections to nature and sexuality that I mentioned. And that leads me to the issue of theme. There are a lot of different viewpoints about themes. Some writers don't think about theme at all. And I've seen interviews where films that had what I thought were the most striking and strongest themes that resonated with me, the screenwriter would say they had no thought of that when they wrote. Other people set out with a message or a purpose, 
And there is danger in that because you can get something like beer bad where your message or purpose drives the story in such an obvious way and ends up feeling kind of clunky and preachy. At the same time, to me, this episode is an example of a story that doesn't appear to have any clear theme and it makes it a less interesting story. It reminds me... Early on, I sent one of my manuscripts to an agent who loved the query letter. I started with a query letter. She loved the concept. She loved my first three chapters. She even wrote, quote, yummy on it. And then she got the whole manuscript and she said, I'm left in the end with what's the point? And at the time, I disagreed with her. But when I took it out, that was right before I went to law school. When I took it out again later, four years later, when I finished law school, I agreed with her. I did not know what the point was. I have no great advice on on what to do about that other than I did sit down and think about what was I saying or what is the story saying about life or relationships or love or people and is it what I want it to say or have the events of the story taken a turn where essentially – who cares? And actually, I take it back. She didn't just say, what's the point? She said, in the end, who cares? So that might be a better question to ask, who cares? And with the wild things, this episode, that's mostly how I feel about it, other than those wonderful moments that I mentioned with Anya and Spike and with Giles singing and some of the great dialogue but who cares overall? Not perhaps the best note to end on, but I do have some interesting things in spoilers and foreshadowing, so I hope you will stick around for that. Thank you, as always, for listening, and I hope you will come back in two weeks for New Moon Rising when Oz returns to Sunnydale and Willow must make a choice. are back for foreshadowing and spoilers. Regarding my what's the point question, perhaps there is a point here when we look at the episode in the context of the entire season, because there is a season four theme. At the end, Buffy will admit that she was so wrapped up in Riley that she neglected her friends. And this is part of the lack of connection between them that Adam and Spike exploit. And our friends need to reunite to prevail. I have a little more on that in a Patreon bonus I am putting together on the hero's journey compared to Buffy's journey and how important her connections with other people are to her and to her mission. And we definitely see that in season four. Another foreshadowing for the end of the season is when Buffy says, who better to bring together a bunch of demon types than someone who's made out of a bunch of demon types? And we'll find out how much that really, really fits. Adam is bringing vampires and demons together, and it is to literally bring them together and create beings like himself. Anya's comment about how a year and a half ago she could have eviscerated Xander with her thoughts. Really interesting, given that we'll find out in season six that actually even if she is a vengeance demon, Anya could not eviscerate Xander with her thoughts, though she will try to do that. She'll find out that she cannot take vengeance on behalf of herself. And this fits 
the lore, the or backstory the show gives us later, because we'll find out she becomes a vengeance demon after taking vengeance on a lover who wronged her. And that is what prompts Tahafren to offer her the vengeance demon gig. But she didn't take vengeance once she was a demon on her own behalf. That moment with Giles singing, we'll see Giles sing again in Restless in the dream sequence, the very last episode of this season, which is sort of a coda. So this is a little foreshadowing of that. Also, the fact that Anya is smitten foreshadows the events in Tabula Rasa in season six, when Willow inadvertently wipes out everyone's memory and Anya and Giles think that they are engaged. And they do kiss in that. However, they have a striking lack of chemistry, which I think is purposeful. And speaking of Anya, when Xander says they had a fight, they need to work it out, but not, quote, rebound with the evil undead, close quote. Wow, I have to wonder, did they know that that would happen, that Anya and Spike would have rebound sex? I'm thinking maybe no, but that putting Anya and Spike together in this episode and seeing how fun they are together perhaps inspired that event in the later season. And finally, I did not find the Buffy and Riley scenes all that engaging, but there is an interesting discussion in the book Buffy the Vampire Slayer and Philosophy, edited by James B. South, in an essay called Buffy in the Buff by Melissa M. Milovic and Sharon M. K. on pages 175 to 176. As Buffy and Riley grow closer physically, they also become emotionally distant and detached. This is symbolized in where the wild things are when poltergeists temporarily magnify the psychic distance between Buffy and Riley. Despite being wrapped in Riley's embrace, Buffy feels completely disconnected, telling Riley, quote, you're too far away from me, you have to keep touching me, end quote. In Buffy vs. Dracula, we learn the reason for the distance between the two. Being a slayer, Buffy is deeply connected to the supernatural world. This fills her with needs and desires that Riley will never understand. As one BTVS scholar observes, it is obvious, quote, that she is not fully satisfied by Riley. While he lies in bed sleeping, likely in postcoital bliss, she sneaks out to patrol. Only after hunting and slaying a vamp can she snuggle in Riley's arms and fall asleep. End quote. From Anne Millard Doherty, Just a Girl, Buffy is Icon, in Reading the Vampire Slayer, an unofficial critical companion to Buffy and Angel, edited by Roz Kavney. Continuing on from Buffy in the Buff, Buffy's faraway gaze is not lost on Riley. Although Riley loves Buffy, he feels emotionally isolated from her and concludes, quote, she doesn't love me, close quote. The problem is that Buffy deliberately chooses Riley with a particular goal in mind to have a normal boyfriend. He is a utility friend for her. Utility friendships are not ideally suited for erotic love because of the strict rationality on which they are built. This becomes clear when the problem 
with Riley is echoed in a series of episodes concerning robots. And much as I love the Buffy bot, I will wait to talk about those issues when we get there, but it never occurred to me to think about Riley in that same way or to think about how Buffy is trying to make this romantic choice of what she thinks she needs or should have as a boyfriend, and that is part of why there is this disconnection here. So that is it for foreshadowing and spoilers. If you have thoughts on where the wild things are, especially if you see something more there than I do see a point or it's your favorite episode, I would love to hear about that or anything else you'd like to share. You can comment on YouTube or at my website in the comments section. Or if you're a patron, you can message me on Patreon. As always, thank you so much for listening and for your support. I hope you will return for the next episode in two weeks, New Moon Rising. Remember, you can find the show notes and back episodes of Buffy and the Art of Story at lisalilly.com slash Buffy Story. You can find the book editions of Buffy and the Art of Story at lisalilly.com slash Buffy Books. And if you like supernatural thrillers or female private eye mysteries with smart, determined female protagonists, you can check out the first in each of my series free at lisalilly.com slash free. Music for this episode was written and performed by Robert Newcastle. Buffy and the Art of Story is a production of Spiny Woman, LLC, copyright 2021. All rights reserved. 